Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Boss Up Podcast, episode 377. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Boss Up. And today I'm thrilled to be sitting down with Deepa Prashadaman. Deepa is a former senior executive and a corporate inclusion visionary. She challenges and redefines the status quo of leadership, success, and power by centering the experiences of women of color. As a senior partner at Deloitte, Deepa spent more than 20 years helping her clients grow and also served as the U.S. managing partner of WIN, Deloitte's renowned women's initiative. She was the first Indian American woman and one of the youngest people to make partner in the firm's history. In 2020, Deepa left Deloitte to co-found N-Formation, a membership-based community for professional women of color. Today, we're sitting down together to talk through her debut book, The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. Deepa, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. I'm so delighted to be chatting with you. Um, I've got a copy of your book, The First, The Few, The Only, right here in my hands, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. And I'm really excited to dive into some of the theories and the research and also just the practical strategies that you map out in here. Um, As a former political organizer, I love your approach to power. And so I cannot wait to just geek out with you about power here for a moment. (laughs) We have similar, I'm guessing, a little bit of similar background or, you know, how how we approach it. I think so. Yeah, I'm I'm intrigued to learn more about that. So tell me first how you decided to make this move for yourself. Like what inspired you to write this book and frankly to kind of throw a curveball into your career by doing so? Yeah, yeah. So my story is I went to grad school. you know, decades ago, thinking I would do politics and policy. That was my background, which is why I think you and I probably have some shared philosophies. <laughs> I wanted a year or two of private sector experience because I was working in DC and there was a lot of, right, you need a little bit of private sector experience or you have to mm. pay your dues. It's a very different sort of philosophy, I think, than, than corporate spaces. Yeah. And so I thought I'll do a year or two and then, you know, I will go back. And 21 years later, I was still in my corporate job, still at the same company, which is, I know, very unusual. Wow. Um, And so it was a really interesting situation. I decided to leave for probably two things that came to a head. Mm -hmm. One was this growing question around purpose because of everything that was happening in the country. Mm -hmm. My background, I was kind of just this growing question, like, what am I doing? Like, I didn't expect to be here for two decades. Am I doing my life's work? Am I contributing? They were just really growing questions. Am I living my purpose? Yeah. Uh, had a big job, right? I was a partner at Deloitte, had a big job, but just really just questioning that. And so that was kind of always there in the background for the last few years of, before I left. 
Mm. And then all of a sudden I started to get sick. I was on a big project. Um, it started as small symptoms, right? Skin rashes, hives. And then over the course of like two, three years, I started to get really, really sick. Mm. I tell a story in the book where it was my 14th doctor. Um, I was in her office. She was a doctor I saw when I traveled because I literally lived on a plane for my job. And she looks at me as she spreads all my tests across her desk. And she says, I can run more tests. Or I can tell you what you probably already know. Your job is killing you. Um, and then she asked me these three profound questions that I think were in a lot of ways were life changing. She said, do you have to do a job like this to feel worthy? You know, what is another job you could do basically? Wow, and don't yeah. you just see you're worthy being you? And I just kind of stopped in my tracks. And I say in the book, like I tried to will myself not to cry because I felt totally seen, but oh seen through gosh. a lot of work wow. had been my entire identity. And I think it had caught up to me. So, um, that kind of, you know, just to fast forward the story, I, I, I allowed myself to really consider leaving. I had known for a while, right, with this purpose question. It still took me two or three years to leave. Um, yeah. And that's a lot of what the book is about. I was a first. I was the first Indian American woman that made partner in a large firm. I felt like there were a lot of eyes on me. Yeah. I felt like my leaving with my, not only my own failure, but failure for other women. And so a very long story short is I started gathering women of color just in an attempt to figure out like, where does one go after two decades? I don't even know what's possible. You get a lot of flack when you're a consultant, like that you can't go get a, a real job, right? So I just started meeting with women of color, like where do I go? What do I want to do? Yeah. And those turned into about a dozen dinners across the country where I ended up meeting 300 senior women of color in an attempt just to network. But instead what I found is the book and you know the company and my yeah. calling. Like in the first meeting, I thought we'll meet for an hour or two. We ended up spending six, seven, eight hours in some cases in these dinners. Wow. And this public company CFO, a black woman said, I sit in a seat of power and I don't feel powerful. Yeah. And that was like, again, second like life changing, you know, moment. And so that became what I wanted to study, what I wanted to research. So that's a very long answer to like, that's really what prompted the book. Because I, I mean, for me, it was sickness and illness. Like, that's how I lost my power. But for a lot of the women I meet, and I interviewed 500 mm. in writing the book, and now have worked with thousands, it comes in different forms, right? It comes mm. in losing your voice. It comes in um, not feeling whole. It comes in hiding parts of yourself, right? Like, not feeling you have enough time for your family. So it's different for different people. Right. But that is such a great statement for it that I think encompasses, by the way, what a lot of women are feeling in this moment. Not just oh, absolutely. Themselves. And I think... Yeah. It's very clear to me in reading your work that you are chasing purpose here because the sort of the approach that you take to this is one of such like intellectual curiosity and genuine. Mm -hmm. I think I can share your lens as a public policy person or at least one with that background and grounding like, yeah. okay, how do we solve for these systemic issues? but are talking with individuals to do so. Yeah. And so when you exactly. say that some of the senior women you spoke with felt powerful and powerless at the same time, I'm I was struck really by this one quote in your book, I think is an important place to start. Um, because I think at some point women listening to this podcast think maybe at the next promotion I'll feel powerful. Maybe at that next promotion I'll mm -hmm. feel powerful. And you write, quote, women of color get pushed and pulled at each step on the corporate ladder. Entry level WSC, are trying to learn how to fit in and adapt to their job and company, and they do not always have the power to make their voices heard. Very relevant, very relatable for so many listening. You go on to say, mid-level women of color are caught wanting to grow and make a difference, but they can become jaded by the lack of change they're able to inspire. 
And senior level women of color are often the loneliest and the most embedded in their companies with the most pressure to conform. So you really mm-hmm. kind of project this landscape where it doesn't get much better the higher you rise. Yeah. So what did you hear from women yeah. at every step of the of the corporate ladder? I love that you pulled it out. I mean, to be honest with you, that, that that's the quote you pulled out. Because to me, like, what's the most um, startling aspect of the book is this idea that once you're in the seat, right, the highest levels, there's more pressure to conform. Right. Obviously, people, there's a lot in the book, so you can take what you want from it. But to me, that's the most startling because I was sitting in one of those seats <laughs> right. and, like, finding my health really, you know, not there for me. And so I just, I think that's such a, such the problem. We have been taught, like, sacrifice, right? And this is, I just recently did a, a HBR piece. It's called around maladaptations about how women conform, right, or how women give up parts of themselves um, believing certain philosophies. And one of these philosophies is that we have to sacrifice ourselves, right? So, you, you know, you're kind of sitting in the seat or thinking at the next step or the next rung. At yeah. some point, it'll get better. And we've bought into that. And so much of what I'm talking about is that these delusions, these things we believe that we've been taught about how we work mm. don't actually work for us. And I would say what's so fascinating to me is I've like, done a big book tour. I've done all of that. It's not just that it's landing for women of color. You know, white women come up to me and say, like, you know, 80% of what you talk about, 90% really relates to me. And even men, right, right. are saying, I think the next generation are saying, like, that's not how I want to work either. So I, I think there's right. something here about the things we've been taught about the workplace and this idea of, like, just put up with it and it'll get better at some right. later point. I mean, I know the next generation doesn't believe that, but I think even our generation, my generation is yeah. like, that's not, that's not, doesn't work for me anymore. No, It's absolutely. interesting. Really, really senior women I also met. So women like in their 60s, like already retired. And those women, I feel like we're looking back and they were sad. They would say things to me like, I wonder if the sacrifice was worth it. Or I wonder, mm-hmm. I look back and like women are in the same place that mm-hmm. they were, you know, when I entered the workforce. And is that really... Um, was my work worth it, right? And so I just, I really wanted to uncover that. I wanted to unpack that because that's so heavy. I don't want more of us to be in these places thinking we have to do it a certain way because if we don't stand up and say, this isn't working, and by the way, not working for anybody, how is right. it ever going to change, right? We can't keep fitting in. We can't keep molding ourselves. We can't keep editing ourselves. Like, that's not working. And it's, by the way, not working for anybody, but we don't talk about that enough. So that's really what the book is about. Yeah, absolutely. I think... It's a good reminder, and you state this in a few different ways throughout the book, but it's a good reminder that a rising tide lifts all boats, right? Like if we design a workplace that works for women of color, then we will in doing so design a workplace that works better for everyone. However, you open your book with a really telling story uh, about a Walter, a white guy, who doesn't feel that way, right? Who truly and genuinely feels... Like the more women of color rise in power and in prominence and in visibility, the fewer opportunities there are for white men. I'd be curious to hear your take on that. And tell us about that story. What what happened there? Yeah. So I opened the book with it. Like you said, Walter was a great friend of mine from grad school. We ended up making a short version of the story. We ended up making partners um, at around the same time. So me and my firm and him and his law firm. So we were at different schools. And someone that I really trusted, I would talk to him five, six times a day, like, a, like one of my best friends. And we're finally in New York celebrating our you know, promotions, which getting to that partner process, it's like a year long process for him. There was a lot of hazing, it felt like. 
And so we're celebrating and, you know, mid through, midway through our toast, I made a comment that I was feeling a lot of pressure. I made partner door, during a recession. So mm. um, it felt like there were a lot of extra eyes on me. There were, I think people questioning, like, should we have made, you know, should we have promoted even before I started? Like, this is just not a great time to be promoting people. So there was that right. question, I think, out there. And so I said to him, I'm really worried and I'm feeling the pressure. And he stopped me mid-sentence and said, I don't really know what you're talking about. You're a twofer, was the word he used. You're a woman of color, woman and a, a person of color, a, a woman of color. You have nothing to worry about. Like opportunities for people like you are growing and opportunities for people like me, and he, you know, a white man, are I'm going to have to work hard for everything that comes next and you're going to coast by. That was kind of the summary of his history. And a really good friend of mine. And yeah. I tell the story... Because for me, it's also a lot of what I think happens to us. You know, all people, when someone says something like that, I got really quiet. I went in my head. And here I am thinking, like, is this what everyone thinks? And it right. really cut me at the knees. Because if he's a friend and thinks this, like, what do people who just see me, you know, and don't know me think? Um, and so it was so undermining, so um, invalidating, and really spoke to a lot of what I would call my imposter syndrome. So it's like a really big story. We're no longer, you know people that talk to each other a lot. And I tried yeah. to talk to him about it, but the, the point of the story is that is, I think, our biggest problem to these inclusion conversations. There's an idea that the pie is set or that the chairs at the table are set. And right. so if I'm going to get a seat, it's going to take someone, take one from someone else. And I think that's like how the entire system is set up. Right. And that sort of philosophy or mentality is why I think we're stuck. Right. And that's part of the mentality I think we have to change. This can't be about like, give me or you opportunities and take them from someone else. This has to be about the system isn't working, so can we grow the pie in a very different way or think about doing business differently? And so that's, yeah, that, I mean, that's such a, an important thought, but also a really radical one, I think. In it a lot absolutely of is. Again, this idea that we have to do business in this very, you know, traditional way or this historic way is part of what I'm questioning because it doesn't work for most of us. Yeah, and that's a big idea, right? And I think, you know, I think Gen Z is inspiring a lot of like late stage capitalism conversations over here at Bossed yeah. Up HQ. I, um, you know, and I write about in my book, Bossed Up, the martyrdom mindset, which sounds a lot like what yes. you're talking about, the sacrificing yeah. on a chronic level. Like, what are we asking people to really do, women in particular? Yeah. So what you're getting at, it sounds a lot like power theory, right? So how can we look at power with a more expansive lens? In your book, yeah. you talk about, you know, your own personal power, then communal power, and then using that communal power to drive systemic change. What's yeah. your approach when it comes to advising yeah. women of you color know, in particular there? Yeah, and, and I think it's a question everyone should be asking. But yes, for women of color in particular, I mean, part of this is like, one, a lot of women of color have been taught, like when we we're little girls, that we're not going to be in seats of power. We're not powerful. Again, we have to adapt and edit. We tell little white boys, right, they're going to be CEOs or tech leaders. And we tell little girls, right, that they are not necessarily powerful. We do that in, little, in school. We do that, what, you know, parents tell their little girls that you're going to have to work harder. You're going to have to do more. And we tell little white boys they're going to be CEOs. They're going right. to lead companies, right? It's just different messages. So part of what I'm trying to get at is those messages start early. And if we aren't aware of them, we, they can limit us. But part of what also happened is, is I met all these women and I would ask them questions around power. They would really like sit back in their chair or they would not want to talk about it. They were uncomfortable with this yeah. idea of power. And I think it comes from, and I'm, I'll be curious if you think this, but it, it's because we've been taught a very narrow definition of power. Most of us, at least yeah. the women I interviewed, 
had been taught power from like Machiavelli or from the 48 rules, this very, very specific idea that power is about power over, right? Or this idea of winner take all. Right. And that's not the kind of power that most women, and this is true for, for women of color and white women, like you know, for all women, I don't think we have that sort of relationship with power and yet we don't have an alternative. And so what I talk about in the book is we need to figure out for ourselves, like how we define power and how we want to show up. And that's the power of me. But in order to change structures, we need the power of we, we need to work together because I can't change a structure on my own. I need my co-conspirators, like my allies. I I don't like (laughs) allies passive, but we need our co-conspirators. Yeah. But I also just ask bigger questions about power. Like, why don't we believe we can change structures and institutions? Mm. Why do we look at leadership and really prize like certain qualities when there's so many more definitions of leadership and power that were accessible to us, but we just haven't learned those things. So it's really like this opening, this, this questioning of, again, do corporate structures or do, do workplaces have to be the way they are? But do we all have to aspire to that kind of power? What if that doesn't resonate with us? What do we do? Right. That's and really I, what I'm I am struck by that because I can't help but thinking back to my days studying organizing people, power, and change, yeah. right? Under Marshall Gans at the Kennedy School, he says, yes. right, the difference between power I over. Took his class, yeah. You did. Oh, my gosh. Too funny. Yeah. Me too. And then power too, right? Power too. I think that, by the way, that class, I think, shapes a lot of our worldview <laughs> because yeah. I've run across a few people who've also taken that class and it just informs their work for their lifetime myself very much included so I think power is very sexy I think women with power I think women who love power I think that's very hot and I think power in that sense is not power to or power over others right but power to achieve what we want to achieve what I found most striking in your book which I haven't really seen people address previously in this way is your approach to to kind of parsing through those messages that women of color get early on. You have to be twice as good to get half as far. You have to see it to be it, right? And you kind of push back on that and then parse through it and take some of the wisdom you want with it. So what is your take on those those truisms, right? Is it is it bad that black moms tell their little girls, look, honey, you're going to have to be twice as good to go half as far? Is that narrative unhelpful or is it a reality check that we need? Yeah, it's it's a hard one. And I'm very careful on how like I talk about that in the book because I, I you know point out that most of us learn how to work from our parents. That's what the data and the research shows, right? And that unfortunately, like these amazing women that I interviewed, they're giving the same messages to their sons and daughters, you know, to their mm. children that they got from their parents. So, and there's a, there's a chapter in the book where I talk about that. You would have thought it evolved. It's not evolving. Yeah. So I think there's something to be said for warning people what's coming. So they don't hit the system thinking it's completely fair or it's unbiased and then right. you hit it and it's, it doesn't show up. But I also want them to say like, this is what's going to be expected of you, Yeah. but you can do it differently. And here's how to do it differently. I wish there was that and, right? So mm. Um, I think part of what we're ha- finding, and I find this really around the conversation of imposter syndrome in particular, yeah. is this idea that like what we feel is not just ours. So this the idea of imposter syndrome is most of us believe we don't we lack confidence as women, right? It's our right. problem. It's an internalized issue. And what we're realizing in the conversation that's growing is no, it's actually structural. If you're told at an early age you you know are not going to be these things, it starts to show up in you. Yeah. You at some point in the book you wrote. Oh, I, I, found, I just found it. 
I literally typed, you don't have to see it to be it and kept that in an email. And I think there's radical power in looking at the world as it is and saying, this is not fair. This is not a meritocracy, as you make very abundantly clear. Capitalism is not a fair system and corporate America is sure as hell not fair either. However, if I walk into work every day thinking I'm at a disadvantage, all the research on stereotype threat, for instance, says if you fixate on how disadvantaged and marginalized you may very well be, then you're going to have less mental faculty available, less resources available to focus on doing the job at hand or playing the politics right. I think that's really fair. But I also think so many of the women don't have never talked about the structural component. I think that's the moment we're in. And it could be that your audience is more savvy or just the next gen, you know, the, ne- the, the, the next generations like millennials are more aware of that. Mm. But the women I spoke to tended to skew a little bit older. Yeah. And I feel like they, they hadn't come to grips with the fact that the system was flawed, that they could change that, that, that there right. are, not, not biases, but the system itself is set up in such a way, right? So I think they've accepted like certain people are biased. But I'm not sure that they had accepted the system's oh, bias. That makes the difference that I was also playing with. Whereas yeah. I think, and it's a very recent conversation, I think a post-COVID or a emerging COVID conversation, that the systems aren't fair. But I don't think we talked about that, right? We didn't yeah. talk about racism work until George Floyd's murder. Like, True. This is all relatively new. And so I think that's maybe the... Do you also think it might have something to do with the fact that these women were in many ways succeeding in that rigged system? (laughs) Like, I almost feel like the more successful you are, the harder it is to empathize with people who aren't. You're like, what? I did it. Like, figure it out. I think that's real. I mean, I also think like what's so interesting, and this is like my new research that's emerging, is that most of us don't decide we're going to leave behind those beliefs until we get to our breaking point. That's what the research also shows. So we conform, we edit, we are willing to you know, compromise in certain ways. And then something happens. So either we get divorced or yeah. we get, have a health issue or we don't get a job, right? So let's, let's take like marriage, right? Like I did all the right things like, you yeah. know, to be a great wife. And yeah. my husband still went out and did something, right? Like right. And it's like, I did everything right. That's the moment where it's like they have, like they bounce against a system and they yeah. realize, or, you know, I dieted or I, you know, was really yeah. careful about my health and I still had a heart attack, right? Like it's that moment where I've done everything I'm supposed to do, quote unquote, and it still didn't work out right. right. And what I want us to start to do, especially as women, is like to ask those questions before we get to the breaking point. Because we wait until we get to the breaking point. It's really mm. hard to come out of that. It takes a lot more work, yeah. right? So I think that's what's really interesting. I find that so tricky in our line of work. Because we're kind of in the business of giving individuals advice. We're also in the business of reshaping systems, but via the individual actors, right? So how do you say to somebody, you know, stop buying into the system as it is? I I mean, you do say that in this book, right? Stop buying into how things are and start advocating for how things should be versus, look, sometimes you got to play the cards you've been dealt as you change the yep. game. Like sometimes you got to play yep. the system. So how do we tap dance on that tightrope? Like how do we walk yeah. that fine line? Like yeah. that is a major um, sort of like, what's the right word? Ethical tightrope that I yep. feel like we're constantly tripping on. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. I did a, um, I was part of a workshop, like a, a large 
workshop, I guess I'll call it, seminar at Harvard in the spring. And it was this conversation with some of the leading race theorists and others in, in, in the field talking about, can you change, can you um, update, can you change the structure with the master's tools, right? Can the master's tools be used to update the master's house or do you have to take it down and start over, right? Interesting um, terminology. And that's a little bit of what you're asking. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, that's really what you're asking. And um, that's not a new idea, by the way, that, that's a, a, you know, older concept but like to talk about in today's age is like really interesting and so the chapter in the book where I talk about playing the game while you change the game I say like I didn't want to write it because I wanted to be all about the system take down the system (laughs) Um, and there were a lot of women that would come to me and say but you need to talk about how we um, navigate right how do we show up while we're in the system because we all don't have the privilege to leave we all can't leave and some of us need to stay, right? Like there was so right. much fear among my, my agent initially. He's like, are you telling everyone to quit? Like, you know, and yeah. it's funny, three years later, I feel like everyone is quitting. That was not <laughs> my message, but it's kind of like you can show up differently, right? So yeah. I think my message is not exit, but you get to decide how you show up in these structures and in these places. You get right. to decide for yourself how much you play the game. And I do think some of us have to play the game. And I don't think it's about being your authentic self at all ways, all times. That, that's right. not what I'm talking about either. But what I work with women, what I find is it's usually six to 10 things that are truly important to how they want to show up in the workplace. It's not hundreds of things, right? It's like, right. I want to I want to set my boundaries around, you know, being a mom and, you know, being able to leave. Right. I want to talk about, you know, my religion. Like, that's really important. I don't want to hide that, you know, whatever that is for them. But yeah. it's kind of figuring out those six or ten things. How do you not give? How do you not? Yeah. How do you not change? And maybe you're willing to, you know, work later hours or work a weekend. Like that's not that's not a problem for you, which for some people it is, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of figuring out for you how do you define your boundaries and what does yeah. that look like? You know, I, mean, I give an example in the book. It's a really simple example. When I was a new partner, I made a list of like how I wanted to show up. One of the things I wrote on the list was like, I don't want to schedule calls on Saturday mornings. I used to have a couple of partners I worked with that would do Saturday morning calls because that was like not client time, right? Yeah. But now as a leader, I got to decide if that was something I did. Right. And so as a small example, as a single person at the time, it was like, that was such an important way that I could say like the weekend time is protected. It's mine. But right. we don't always think like that. And we, I could have just kind of said all my predecessors held Saturday calls, so I'm going to hold a Saturday call. Right. So it's an example of where it can be small things, but it's how you show up, how yeah. you lead, how you make your choices that are different based on who you are and what's important. Totally. I'm looking at the area in your book where you talk about evaluating whether you stay. And you say, you know, know yeah. your why behind why you're staying. Mm-hmm. Know your must-haves if you do stay. Like, no Saturday calls. Thank you very much. set boundaries and don't let your job own you and then don't lose who you are and what matters to you and those are very straightforward very practical and very hard to do right easier said than done but I think like quitting for your own health your own sanity your own purpose whatever doesn't change the system to your point like I think women of color in particular are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in our country. Yep. And I think it's because we're being yep. women of color are being driven out of corporate America. It's a brain drain that nobody's paying enough attention to. So what does it look like? Like what's the balance here between that private sector change that we're aiming for, whether it's driven from employee demand or top down yep. versus, and this is totally outside the, you know, confines of your book yeah, necessarily, yeah. but your background in public policy, what role does the public space have in this? Like, 
Is this a change that you actually think that corporate America can make? To, to Back to that question around the panel that you were wow. on. Yeah, it's so funny. Like I, <laughs> the book, you know, the book was written, um, you know, a year ago, right? A little bit sure. over a year ago, right? And then there's a whole book launch process. So I, my answer has probably changed at different points. Now, yeah. we're at a moment where I would tell you so many of the women I work with are being forced back into the office, right? They're, over the summer, it felt like there was more choice. I know a lot of women where it's like three, four, five days, or you have the proximity bias if you're not in the office and not seen, right? Yeah. People think um, you're, not, you're not working as hard. And so I feel like we're in a moment right now, especially, and coming maybe even into the beginning of next year, where those questions are being decided. Like now's the moment where are we mm. gonna revert? Or are we going to take what we're learning? And I think the recent McKinsey research that suggests like that we are going through, that women are going through the great breakup yeah. is an example where the highest rates of women exiting or like, you know, they're not leaving to not work. They're leaving to work differently or to in different spaces or to start their own thing. Like there yeah. is something that's happening. So I think, unfortunately, a lot of companies are trying to revert. And I think you're starting to see what happens when that happens. And we're going to see more women just opt out and do other things. Not opt out not to work, but opt out of the structure and to choose to do it differently. And it's hard to, like, begrudge them. (laughs) You're like, yeah, girl, same. You know, I feel you. And so it's it's definitely a a moment of reckoning whether companies care about that brain drain. Like, if you really care about retaining the best and the brightest – and making yeah. work work for those best and brightest. Um, you know, how much does it really matter to you if yeah. you're seeing a mass exodus of women? Yeah. It does It does terrify me a little bit because we're seeing backsliding. And I think we're not just seeing that in the private sector, are we? We're seeing that yeah. in a lot of public spheres as well. Yeah. Um, and to, as of the recording of this episode, the midterm elections have not yet happened, just for clarity's yes. sake. Yes. So yeah. I'm still holding my breath. And your, but- your point is... Yeah, I was going to say, your point is so valid. So by the way, again, the book is on corporate America, but I've yeah. talked to nonprofits. I mean, I have a lot of professors that call me saying this is happening at my institution. Um, you know, so I do think it's happening in other sectors. I don't, I mean, there's maybe more acuteness of some of the behavior yeah. in corporate, but I think it's universal. So I don't think it's sector specific. I think these are some of the norms of how we work. And I have a lot of the, I think that the way it's being handled is a conversation around burnout. But I think yeah. that is code for a lot yeah. of things that we haven't fully unpacked, right? We'll give you more wellness activities or you can oh, take more spa days. Like that's not solving what we're, what we're talking about. I am so glad you said that because we were just talking about it this morning. We have that conversation regularly here. Should we go back to the burnout conversation? And I find that the mm-hmm. clients who come to us looking for help with burnout are so frankly missing the mark. <laughs> They're like almost yeah. disingenuous. They're like, well, we're yeah. not going to change our the systemic problems that we have. So can you give us a 90 minute workshop on burnout? And I'm like, yeah. yes. I don't know if I can do that anymore. Like yeah. I'm tired of that. It's been a decade of that. And it's just, that's not the most meaningful work we do here. So I'm glad yeah. to hear you say that. I, mean, I think a lot of people, by the way, would say the same thing about DE and I work. Like that's, it's the same challenge, right? I get a lot of people coming to me. Can you help us? So I put in a program around un- still unconscious bias, right? Like, no. I, and I just say no. No, yeah. I can't do that. That's smart. If that's what you're focused on, you have bigger issues. You and I need to grab a cocktail sometime soon because I'd love to talk to you <laughs> more about that. In the meantime... Who should pick up a copy of your fabulous book? Who do you think this is most impactful for? Yeah, I love that question. So interestingly enough, I wrote it solely for women of color. Like I don't define a lot of the language in the book. 
And it's actually been a lot of white male leaders in particular who brought who bought the book originally because they're like, I have so many questions. And by the way, I can't ask those questions anymore because I've been told to go educate myself. <laughs> and so it actually, I think, is a book for women of color to see themselves. And sure. obviously now a lot of women of color have read it and I get that response. But I, you don't have to be a woman of color. You can be a leader, you know, an HR leader trying to understand what you can do. And I talk some of that. But you can just be a co-conspirator wanting to understand what's different because you can't fix it if right. you don't understand it. And because okay. I have so many stories across industries, across sectors, across the country, what I'm being told is the volume of stories makes it hard to deny. Like, so I don't have yeah. just 10 stories. I have hundreds of stories. That's so. awesome. I love that. Yeah. Where can our listeners keep up with you, Deepa? And thank you, by the way, for sharing yeah. your time no, and insights. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I would say my website, so Deepa Peru, P-U-R-U dot com. Um, I have, you know, list a lot of different things there. You can buy the book there. You can buy the book. It's available anywhere you buy books. There's also an audio book. But I'm most personally active on LinkedIn. So I do a lot of posting around these kinds of topics in particular. And so if these kinds, you know, whether yeah. it's burnout, which I agree with you, I'm actually doing a big talk on burnout on Thursday. And it's about the system <laughs> not working, not really yeah. like how you, you know, take a break. Yeah. That's what I would say. It's those good places to Awesome. Thank you so much for being here, Deepa. And let's be friends. I'll drop your line yeah. when I'm in LA next. And yeah, I would please love do to. the same Thank if you're you. in Denver, because this was such a fun conversation. Thank you. For links to everything that Deepa and I talked about in today's episode, head to bossdeb.org slash episode 377. That's bossdeb.org slash episode 377. And if you want to level up your leadership in the coming year with us here at Bossed Up, enrollment is open now for our January launch of Level Up, our six-month leadership accelerator for women on the rise. So head to bossdeb.org slash level up to learn more and enroll today. Until next time, let's all keep bossing in pursuit of our purpose and, might I add, power, because we love a woman who loves power. And together, let's lift as we climb.